Welcome to Light of the World. I am Pastor Alfonso Espinosa, and I'm here with uh, both Tom Howard and Ben Strosheim and Brad Perry, who takes care of all the technology here at Light of the World. This is a ministry of St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Irvine, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Great to have you. And we are continuing our series that follows the outline of this book, Faith That Sees Through the Culture. I had the privilege of writing it for Concordia Publishing House, copyright 2018. And this book was written to give Christians a higher sense of confidence as they live out their faith in the world today, in the culture. And by doing that, we had to address, to achieve that goal, we had to address the paradoxes or the dualities that we face. So that's what we've been talking about these dualities uh, here with uh, Tom and Ben and Brad. And today we continue with the content from chapter two, which considers the struggle on the inside. This happens to be the, the logical follow-up to what we did last time in chapter one, which was about the struggle with the outside, those external forces that we were talking about, the devil and the world. But now we're going to how we connect to it. Unfortunately, we connect to it by virtue of, of sin in our lives. So guys, when you think of that concept of, of sin, um, what are some of the first things that come to mind? I just think of brokenness. Uh, think about things not being the way they should be. Mm. And uh, you know, as I look at myself and you know, all the parts I don't wanna look at, all the parts I don't wanna see, mm-hmm. um, that theme of brokenness, um, just mm-hmm. continues to ring. Mm-hmm. I, uh, y- you're making me uh, think about Romans 5.12, that, um, um, that through Adam all sinned and, and death came into the world as a result of that. And that results to a, a real brokenness, as you're saying. Um, ben, how, how about you? Yeah, honestly, the same word came to mind was, was brokenness. Um, and then the, the second thing was just the news. When I, when I turn on the news and I see what's happening in our world, mm-hmm. um, I'm constantly reminded that it's not the way that it, that it should be. Um, and we see that in the way that humanity is treating humanity, but also the way that humanity has, treat, uh, has treated the earth and um, mm-hmm. the conflict between all of those aspects. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a mess. Well, both of you have me thinking about the book of Romans because in Romans 8, um, Paul talks about the, the, creation, the creation groaning as in the pangs of childbirth. And I appreciate your point because uh, I think it's easy sometimes to reduce the sin problem that is certainly within us to humanity. But sin coming into the world has, according to Holy Scripture, impacted the entire creation. I really appreciate that point. It's easy to look outward. Yeah. Right. It's easy to point to all the things that are wrong out there. Mm-hmm. That person, that system, mm-hmm. that organization, they're the problem. Right. Yeah. It is not fun to look inward. Yeah. We have a, we have a hymn in our Lutheran service book hymnal. We've had it for a long time. It's, it was in the old LW blue hymnal and the old red hymnal TLH. It's called chief of sinners though I be. And uh, sometimes when I sing that hymn, I want to change the words and I want to say, Chief of sinners though I be, Brad Perry is worse than me. And so we have this tendency to go to go outward, right? And we forget of our internal malady, which is, I mean, we have a front row seat to our own sin. So to me, guys, it makes sense when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. I mean, we should all say that. 
As a matter of fact, I have humbly posited that there is one legitimate place where um, Bible-believing Christians should disagree with Scripture, and it's where Paul says he's the worst sinner. <laughs> we should be able to make a case that, wait a minute, Paul, I know you're bad, but I'm worse because I have a front row seat to my sin in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and not done. But you see, in a way, I've kind of already gotten ahead of myself because I'm starting to be a little reductionistic on the topic of sin because I'm talking about things we do or things we think or things we say. But isn't sin a little more than that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's this condition of, of, of what we are, right? This, this <laughs> disease that we have. Um, I think you describe it in, in this chapter, if I'm remembering correctly, that mm-hmm. it's, I don't, I, I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not mm-hmm. a sinner because I sin. Did I get that right? You did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I, I think that's, a, it, that's even harder to swallow sometimes, right? We, yeah. If we do some bad action or if I tell a lie or I yeah. kind of change the truth a little bit, mm-hmm. I can justify that uh, mm-hmm. from time to time. But to really accept the the disaster of, of this sinful nature is sometimes harder. Uh, yeah, we tend to define sin, you know, so incorrectly, mm-hmm. right? We, we see it as messing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I made a few mistakes. I did some things. If I could go back in time, I would do them differently. Um, we don't oftentimes take it to that, well, enough, take it to that next level. It's not just what I do, it's who I am. Mm-hmm. And it's at the core of my being. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if it's something that I just am doing, then I can stop doing it. Because again, the illusion is that I'm in control. Instead of realizing that what I do is a product of who I am. And so when I mess up, that says something about me. That says something mm-hmm. about what's gone on inside of me. Again, that brokenness, yeah. that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. And so sinning is, you know, just, just more than an action. It's that condition. That's fantastic. I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and you're right to Ben that it's harder to believe this aspect that we're now talking about. The others are right before our eyes. We see violations of the law all the time. But to take the next step and go back to that core condition that the church refers to as original sin um, is really to hold on to an article of the faith taught in Scripture that we really don't see on our own. And we have to have it revealed to us, and it is in God's word. And God is being a good doctor by doing this. He's giving us that proper diagnosis of the problem so we become aware. And this is core sin. Um, I had the opportunity to elaborate on this a little bit in another place. And uh, this is a quote I'm, I'm quoting here from um, a uh, chap by the name of Ronald Marshall. He wrote an essay called Salvation Within Our Reach, It came out in the old Lutheran Forum fall of 1997, but I think it's an outstanding summary of the core sin condition. And this is what what he said, what he wrote. Christians are to teach and believe that sin is so pervasive that it is from head to foot, quote unquote. And he's he's quoting from the small called articles of the Lutheran Confessions, Article 3, so damaging that it makes us into, quote, recalcitrant donkeys, unquote, (laughs) from the solid declaration of the confessions, and extreme enough to make us even, quote, hate God from the apology, um, article two. It makes us wicked 
by being in curvatus in se or curved in on ourselves. And here he cites a Luther um, volume 25. So the twisted nature reported in Romans 7.23 as captivity must not be limited to pre-Christian days, but extended to all Christian life. This teaching on sin will also change the way we think of the church. No longer will the church be seen as a club, a school, a meeting hall, or a community activity center, but as a hospital for the spiritually and terminally ill, unquote. I really like that quotation. And notice the way he ends, um, terminally ill. And I think you would mention sickness, right? And that's another way of describing the brokenness. And indeed, this is one way to understand from a biblical perspective what core sin is. It is a spiritual disease that has impacted our entire being. So I really, yeah, I, I think we're on the right track to really make people aware that unless we kind of get back to this first step, we're really not going to understand just how serious this problem is if we reduce it to behavior. Well, and then if we have the wrong diagnosis, we're going to have the wrong treatment, right? And so um, I use this example in class pretty often, you know, is a cancer diagnosis good or bad? Mm. Well, no one wants a cancer diagnosis, but it only comes if you actually have cancer. That's right. And so if you already have cancer, then the diagnosis is actually the first step in the right direction towards the, the solution and, and the treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, and those treatments are pretty silly until you know you need them. Exactly. And so, you know, if we're not going to let sin be exactly what it truly is and, and mm-hmm. its real depths, then we're not going to look for the right kind of solution. Kind of going back to what you were saying, Tom, if, if sin really is just my errors, my mess ups, then I'm the solution. I just got to work a little harder, maybe a new self-help book, and maybe I'll hold, we'll hold each other accountable and we'll get after it and do better. Mm-hmm. If that's all sin is, then that would be the solution. Mm-hmm. And so it's critical that we get down to the, the real nature of, of what it is. It's yeah. interesting to think about how the severity of the physical condition is directly equated to what has to be done to me to yeah. fix it, mm. right? So something as serious as cancer well, I need, I need, I might need radiation, right? That's poison, right? Mm -hmm. To the body. That, that's something Mm -hmm. that's going to kill things in my body. If, you know, if I have a head cold or or whatever, okay, take a couple pills, drink some water and kind of sleep it off, right? It's not going to have as great of an effect to me Mm -hmm. to battle the problem. You know, if I've completely blown out my knee and torn every ligament, well, I need to take maybe ligaments from other parts of my body or tissue from other parts of my body, reconstruct my knee Right, something has to dramatically change, mm-hmm. depending on the nature of the disease that's in me. Mm-hmm. And so, if sin again is just something I do, and it, then it doesn't really require that much. Right. But if it's who I am, mm-hmm. I need to be destroyed. Yeah. I need to be rebuilt. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, and I think the analogy is outstanding. Uh, um, we're taking it to the body to kind of reflect on the spiritual. And um, I, I, I love the analogy. Um, and the analogy also reminds us to, to kind of be, um, um, <clears throat> strictly speaking, it, it's, it's rather interesting that when God created us and, and he declares in Genesis, he looks upon all of his creation and says it's very good, that we do maintain in our, our confessions that we are still very good. 
uh, you and I and all of us are, 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 are God's very good creation. But the sin disease has come upon this good creation. So th- this helps a little bit in terms of some of the um, details of biblical theology. Um, you are, you are, and I am uh, completely affected by sin in such a way, just as cancer, going back to the analogy, can pervade every organ of the body if it metastasizes. Sin is a spiritual disease that, disease that has metastasized, where it's impacted our intellect, uh, it's impacted our volition, it's, it's impacted all of these things that we can do from within. Uh, but at the same time, those things as they are, have been created by God are still good. And, and this is why I love the analogy, and you're going back to the fact that we would have a good doctor who would actually treat the problem by going to our good body to repair it. In the same way, this is what Christ does. He doesn't, he doesn't annihilate us, he doesn't eliminate us, but he redeems us by going to the sin problem so that we are able to not only continue, but to heal and eventually be in glory. To reconstruct us, to make us, as scripture says, right, a new creation. Amen. Um, well, I, th- I think you hit on something important too there, you, you know, drawing, drawing back in that we are still good. What I hear you saying is that we still have value. Amen. And I think that's a, a really confusing idea that if I call you a sinner, yeah. I'm somehow diminishing who you are or mm-hmm. what you are and taking away your value. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. That's right. It's not the biblical explanation of things. And it's not the case if I say you have cancer or if I yeah. say you have blown out your knee, yeah. you know, you might not want to hear these words. Yeah. And I realize why you're a sinner is going to come across differently. Mm-hmm. But if the analogy holds, then yeah. I'm not reducing your value at all. I'm Amen. just being honest and bringing yeah. you truth. And of course, because mm-hmm. we're chief sinners with Paul, I'm mm-hmm. not really saying anything to you that you can't say, say right back to me. Wow. That, that's a really great point. And, and I think that sometimes in the culture, uh, not understanding the details and what's really, what scripture is really saying, that people without the word, w- without faith, assume that that's what Christians are saying. We're, we're, we're devaluing people by calling them sinners. And we're, we're being um, like insulting, unnecessarily abashing or insulting uh, to be negative, you know, and it's, it's such a downer. Like who would be a Christian if, if that's all you're going to do and, and, and carry this negative attitude around? Much to the contrary, God gives us this insight precisely to show us how much we are valued. I'm going to take the time to not only diagnose you, but to work on you to the extent of making you a new creation. And our world struggles with this, you know, the, the, the understanding that you can disagree with somebody and still love them, mm-hmm. right? That again, we go back to our dualities theme here, yeah. that multiple things can be true at the same time. That when yeah. you say, hey, I think what you did was wrong, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean I hate you, doesn't mean I don't think you have value as a, as a human, right. but I think your action violated some standard mm-hmm. um, of goodness. And I think that's one of the negative marks that the church, unfortunately, is oftentimes earned yeah. uh, over the course of church history, where you know, what's a common criticism of the church? We're self-righteous. We think we're better than everybody else. Yeah. Um, true Christianity destroys mm-hmm. any type of chance to believe that. Right. Because what we preach is Christ crucified for sinners, for all have sinned. That includes me. Yes. And so what do we do as members of the body of Christ? We can hold each other accountable. We can acknowledge our sin 
and 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 we need that. I need that. It's not just oh look at me. I get to go now point out everybody else's flaws. I need right. to be around a group of people that are holding me accountable. Yeah. And 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 so if if we can do that and, and hopefully send that message out a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, people understand again why we're doing it. Again, the diagnosis of cancer is so that you can get the help you need. Exactly. It is not to put you down as a human to right. destroy your value, your worth. It is mm-hmm. to show you there's a problem. Yeah. Now let's go look for the solution. That God loves you so much, he wants to help you. Yeah. And I, I love what you said. I, I think it's spot on. Um, we, um, and, 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 and you were mentioning dualities along the way, and it really does um, present the need to maintain the dualities in order to kind of sort this out. Because we've already said that sin is so pervasive that it, it affects all of us, this core condition called sin. You've also heard um, Tom correctly uh, mention before um, being transformed. And, and that gets us to uh, a scripture like uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So we really, as Christians, and we're getting... We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Don't worry. We won't get into sanctification too much yet. But we do believe, teach, and confess that when Christ redeems us, he gives us a new us, <laughs> a new self. And, and that is created, um, that is recreated in the image of God. And, and that means that the, the Christian really does have a born-again spirit, just as the scriptures say. But the reason I, men- I mention that is because we want to avoid any potential confusion here because that reality of the transformation, the reconstruction, does not mean that the old sinful nature is eradicated. It's still there. And uh, Christians should actually be kind of excited about this from the standpoint that if we understand this, God will use us to truly be humble to anyone we talk to. Because coming to anyone who does not know Christ, we know, if, if we know properly, I am just as much a sinner, according to my sinful nature, as anybody else I talk to, no matter where they're from or what they've done. And where would I be if I didn't know Christ? Right? Kind of keeping that perspective in mind, you right. know, how grateful I am that the gospel has been presented to me. Mm-hmm. And so what, what would that mean if that never happened? It might be a sign of, the, of that sinful nature clinging to us yet when mm-hmm. we can even fathom the idea of Christians being viewed as arrogant. Mm. How on earth... And, and I know we do this is the point. Yeah. We come across as arrogant because we act arrogant. Yeah, yeah. But how could I possibly act arrogant if yeah. I know all the things we've just discussed? Yeah, I love that. You're it's right. In, it's impossible. Yeah, right? it, it should never happen. I can't happen. possibly get myself above you. Yeah. But I still can. Yeah, from exactly. Time to time. Which goes back <laughs> yeah. to that sinful nature. Right? Exactly. That who I am in my condition, yeah. the depth of my brokenness yeah. is, and I can say it, mm-hmm. but I still want to. Mm-hmm. I still want to believe yeah. that I'm better than... Yeah, everyone else. The other guy. Instead of mm-hmm. accepting that cold, harsh reality. Yeah, and this is why we see the contradictions within the Christian church, because every Christian under the sun still deals with this core sin problem, and it causes us to sin in thought, word, and deed again, and we, we get arrogant and we we forget who we really are. And I think one thing that's important to note is that we talk about this in our classes a lot, and in in the idea of what, by what standard are we are we judging? Are mm-hmm. we making a judgment call, right? If mm-hmm. somebody's fast or slow, well, you need mm-hmm. a standard mm-hmm. with which to be able to determine is that person a fast runner or a slow runner? That's right. 
when we define sin yeah. as something that I don't like, mm-hmm. as we define sin based on any kind of uh, standard that has been created by me or culture, now who is and who isn't a sinner right. dramatically changes. Absolutely. But if sin is defined by going against the standard mm-hmm. of good established by the creator Amen. And, and righteous righteous God of the universe, yeah. now we are forced yes. to look at yeah. sin as being something different. And I'm forced to look at myself as being something different. If I can create the standard for myself, yeah. well, I'm probably going to meet my own standard. Yeah. That's outstanding. And this is a difference between uh, an objective and a subjective criterion, right? And the objective criterion for the Christian is the word of God. We're not saying that you shouldn't do that because I don't like it or it offends me or I'm not comfortable around it. I mean, who cares, you know, how I feel? It's what God's word says. And Along these lines, as we depend on this objective word, it helps us to understand when we talk about having a heart for people who are uh, uh, suffering in their sin condition, and we come and we offer them this diagnosis from God's word, we are not judging them subjectively. We're, We're not judging them like, I'm up here, you're down there, and let me tell you how bad you are which, by the way, is a judgment which Jesus Christ um, forbids us to practice. We are not to practice any kind of pharisaical judging. And this is what, by the way, he means in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us not to judge. Don't have an attitude of condemning, putting down, looking down, because you, you, you think your stuff smells better than the next guy's. Ridiculous idea. On the other hand, there's an objective judgment. It's when that doctor is diagnosing you and just, you have cancer. That's an objective diagnosis. And, but, but see, the rest of the story is we all have that objective diagnosis. And therefore, we are in the same boat with anybody we talk to. And this should breed humility. So it gets back to what you're saying, Ben. I mean, this, this thought of us, you know, uh, talking down to is, should be unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, the one, I'm not the one making that determination. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know, somebody gets in their car and drives 90 miles an hour down the 55 freeway. Right. I can objectively and rightly say that person has broken the law. Right. It's not because I've established the law. It's not because I have some moral uh, explanation as to why that's wrong. I mean, I might. I, I might view that as being wrong and dangerous in certain you know, ways and threats to the safety of other humans. And I may, in my mind, get it. Right. But that, that delves into that subjective. Exactly. When I'm pointing out that either I or somebody else has broken God's law, I'm not the one who made the law. I'm not mm-hmm. the one who made that wrong. I'm just mm-hmm. simply pointing out the objective reality. Amen to that. So this core problem uh, called sin, which again is an article of the faith that the Bible teaches, uh, comes out in Scripture, by the way, this condition part, which puts us in a good position to understand the difference because uh, between I am a sinner because I commit sins. No, I commit sins because I'm a sinner, as you brought out, Ben is Psalm 51, five, uh, which says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, which is just a mind blower. This is before any of us have a chance to do anything. We're, we're conceived in the womb. You know, what is, what is, what are we doing at that point? We're nothing. We're going along for the ride. Um, and that, that brings out the fact that this is indeed a condition. Now, Genesis is very helpful because it gives us this background, which actually it, it creates this connection between what we talked about last time in chapter one in terms of the struggle from the outside, the external, from the devil in the world, and now this week, the internal, because they're connected in such a way that Genesis takes us back 
to the evil one, the, the dragon, Satan, the devil, who confronted Eve and tempted her to go against the word of God by taking from the fruit of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment that she gives into that temptation, it's interesting that re recall that before the scene in, in Genesis 3, that God warns his, his first married couple that in the day that if this happens or when it happens, you will surely die. Now, Eve gives into the temptation. She eats of the fruit and then she's, she has a massive heart attack and hits the <laughs> deck and dies, right? No, she doesn't. She continues to live, right? So what it must mean is a kind of spiritual death that occurs. And it gets back to the, the internal brokenness, the internal disease. And the spiritual death, as a result, affects, as we said before, every other faculty, every faculty of our human existence. But I love the way that Genesis demonstrates in Genesis 3 how this condition shows, it, shows itself. It just kind of oozes out of us. Because as soon as that condition comes into play, that spiritual deadness comes into play, which is, by the way, very... Uh, much of substantiated by St. Paul in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But going back to Genesis, it comes out in three very practical ways. The first way that it comes out, because of core sin, when it comes to God, we run and hide. We want nothing to do with God. I'm out of here. God's coming. Let's go hide, right? The second thing that it does is it... Uh, it produces a sense there's something wrong with me. There's shame. Um, they realize that they're naked for the first time. It hadn't occurred to them before. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what's, what's wrong with me? So, so now there's this dissonance within themselves. And there is also this third element. There is now dissonance in relationships. When God confronts the man and the woman, the man's all like, it, it was her. <laughs> it was Eve. It's her fault. She made me do it, right? And so what does this course in do? It alienates us in regards to our relationship with God, regards our relationship within ourselves, and our relationship with other people. That's how severe it is. Yeah, and I, th I think death is an appropriate term for that. I mean, if we really think about the, the brokenness of the world, broken to the point of death. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the things that happen in our own lives, and our own relationships that we see on the news, it's, it's really, really bad. And it's yeah. not some theoretical... Um, concept of, or, or even a theological debate, right? Yeah. This is real practical brokenness that leads to sometimes literal death, of course, in the way that, that we treat each other. But um, it has led to great amounts of oppression and all kinds of just evil, disastrous behaviors that have had disastrous outcomes for, for humans. Yeah. And things that we can call objectively evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? When... Mm -hmm. As so much within inside of ourselves cries out in, in many different ways, when we see the evil, when we see the injustice and the oppression, we see all the things that happen in the world, and our hearts cry out mm -hmm. in anger mm -hmm. and you know bitterness and, and, and also mourn you know yeah. deeply, there's a reason why we feel those things, because yeah. those things that we're, res we're responding to are actually bad, mm -hmm. not a subjective, I just don't like that that happened in the world. Yeah. When, when our hearts cry out and we want to scream and cuss and cry and, mm -hmm. you know, punch walls, yeah. there's a reason we do yeah, absolutely. because those things are truly evil. Yeah. 
We, we know they are. They're, they're undeniable. Um, God, when God calls them evil, they must be, and we pick up on it because God has given us a conscience. Thank God. And <laughs> it's actually, you know, it's, it's not pleasant, and it's not good in the sense that we ever want to experience it. But when someone is going through the emotions that you were just detailing, it's good in the sense that they have a conscience, and they're still connected to the reality of God. Um, and what would we, would we do without that conscience? It's one of the remnants that remains after the fall. We are fallen. We are dead to sin. As bad as that is, though, it's not as absolutely as bad as it could be. It could be much worse. Even though a person has fallen before a conversion to Jesus Christ, the scriptures teach that people still, all people, still have what we refer to as the natural knowledge of God. They still have this inkling that there's a creator by looking upon the creation externally. And they have an inkling that there's a creator by looking within the conscience to know that God is, he's, he's wired us in such a way as we know there's such a thing as right and wrong, like you were saying. We know this is wrong. We just, we just no one had to teach me that. I just know intrinsically. But I, I want to get back to how this, this interconnectedness between the world and our sin works. I want to credit uh, Don Matzat. He wrote a book called uh, Christ Esteem, and he presents this, uh, this metaphor, this illustration. And he says that the world and the devil are like this um, signal tower that emits a signal. But our sinful nature is like a receiver that picks up on that signal and brings it into our own selves within. In other words, the core sin problem is such that we actually, according to our sinful nature, we are in cahoots with the evil one. When we do that which is evil, we are emulating and perpetuating the work of the devil. Some of the hor horrific things that have happened um, in, in our culture recently, one of the great exclaims that you hear from people is, how could this happen? And when they say that, they're searching for an answer that is only answered in Holy Scripture. Because a person has gone so far off the rails, the only explanation is a spiritual one. They are now literally being affected by dark forces. And the dark forces translate into the most horrendous things. It, it, is, it is sheer evil. Sin is bad enough. But when evil is occurring, it's when sin is conducted in an unrestrained way with the intent to hurt somebody else. And that's what happens in this world. And that's what our sinful nature is in tune to, unfortunately. It reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity talking about you know, people wondering why the, how do, where does the human machine go wrong? Right, when we talk about internally, externally, you mentioned the relationships with, with one another. Yeah. And all, the, all of its different forms. Where does it go wrong? And he mentions when you're trying to run the human machine on a fuel other than its source and mm. what it, the way it was created and designed to run, yeah. it's not going to work out well. You know, you, you put water into a gas tank in a car and then wonder why the car's not working. Right. When, when we have gone away, if we believe that there is a creator God who has established right and things that are holy and righteous and good, when we try to live apart from that, mm -hmm. logically it stands to reason that things are not going to work and right. evil and pain and suffering is going to re uh, result. Yeah. And the devil knows us. Yeah. You know, he, he knows who we are. He knows what's inside of us and he can play off that. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he tempted Adam and Eve with not 
not a a sinful condition. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't show them the apple and go, ooh, doesn't this look good? He knew that maybe we didn't have that element to us yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, could be wrong on that a little bit. But, uh, you know, he, he played on, what do you know? You can know more. You understood knowledge, so let's play on the knowledge concept. Well, now mm-hmm. he gets a lot more to play on. Mm. We have our carnal desires and yeah. things that are just, you know, in our gut and in the way we feel, so he can play off of that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to you go back to that, that tower analogy, yeah. um, he's sending out a signal because he knows yeah. our, the antennas that we are and the yeah. things that we'll, we'll be attracted to. Yeah, I, I really think that's a, a great elaboration. And because you're kind of going to how he's talking to us and, and how he's, he's trying to, to coax. And, um, and it, one of the things that uh, comes to mind here is uh, what, what we refer to in, in sacred theology uh, as, as noetic, uh, the noetic effect of sin. Um, and the, uh, the newest refers to the mind. And, and so the noetic is when sin is so bad that it affects the way we think. And um, it's true that at the point of actually biting into the fruit that the, the clear law was violated at that point. But what Satan was doing was he was luring Eve. And the way he was talking to her started her thoughts going in the wrong direction that led her to this act. And, and in fact, this is where sin begins. Um, and of course, um, not only do we have the, um, the account in Genesis three, but we have, we have another account in James and I should never mention a book without, uh, having memorized the exact reference. But, um, in James, um, there is, a this process, if you will, of, uh, temptation and sin that James elaborates upon. And, um, I think it's applicable to our discussion and, if I can find it, there's Hebrews. We're getting warm. There it is. There's James. Um, so here in in James, um, we have this process described. And um, beginning at verse 13, uh, chapter 1 of uh, James, uh, beginning at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, now at verse 14, this is where the process comes in. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So that it, it starts in the heart. We start to desire, we get dragged away, then we commit the act, and now we're dead before you know it. But I mention that because of this, this internal origin of things. And this is the part that we have a hard time admitting in our culture because we need to be okay. We, we, we can't be, we don't want to be broken. We, we don't want to go there, right? That's yeah. a problem. Yeah. And I, and I, th- again, I think that's tied to like we were talking about before with value, mm-hmm. right? If I'm broken, then I'm less. And then therefore I'm, I'm not good enough or I don't, I lose some sort of value or identity Yeah, <clears throat> and I have to build myself back up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And again, everything you've just said has nothing to do with my value to God or how he views me or loves me or cares about me. Thanks be to God. Um, but yeah, I th and I think too, what Satan's doing to, to Adam and Eve and what he does to us is exactly what, what he wanted for himself, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So God says, this is good, this is bad. And he comes along and says, are you sure? You know, did, did, did God get that right? Did he really say, you know, I know it look, he says it, bad but doesn't it looks fine i don't really mm -hmm. see the problem with right. it right so again our our view my subjective view my preferences my opinions about it come into play here as opposed to relying on the objective word of god um, who has the authority and right to set these things as good or, or bad that's so good and 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 they said well it looks fine to me i don't see the problem right and then of course yeah. the calamity ensues as described there right yeah. that that once they do that all of this other evil floods in and all of this other damage floods in mm -hmm. and we don't have any solution to that on our own of course uh, but it, it's it's enticing to us because yeah. somehow in this i don't know if it's an image of god thing because he's a creator we want to create mm -hmm. we we've been put in charge of of this creation to steward it and yeah. we just took that a step too far and thought well maybe i know how to do it better than better than he does well, you're, you're describing now something that um, um, elaborates upon this idea of the noetic effect of sin. It affects the way we think. And then here we get really practical. Um, a dead giveaway of the sin problem, the core problem, is that our thinking no longer aligns with God's. And, and, and so um, the way that we explain this in the church is that here you have the, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, the way God designed us originally when he did make us in his image, and we'll talk more about the image of God in a moment, was such a way that all of our faculties submitted to the authority of the word of God. So, for example, reason was put underneath the authority of God's objective truth. We call this the, the ministerial use of reason. But with sin coming into the picture, now we exalt our reason. And when, when Luther calls reason the devil's whore, this is what he means. We are now subjecting scripture to our thoughts. And of course, God warns us about that, doesn't he? You know, uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Um, and that has all happened by virtue of sin coming into the world, as we talked about in Genesis 3, and completely um, infiltrating the image of God. Now, now here, and thanks for mentioning this, Ben, because in Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27 or so, uh, when he creates the, the man and the woman, he creates them, male and female, in his image, in his likeness. There are a lot of theories about what the image of God, the Imago Dei, means, but the way we teach it is that the image of God amounts to what we call original righteousness, so that God's desire is our desire. God's will is our will. God says jump, we say how high. He says turn left, we're on it, you know. But as soon as sin comes into the world, all of that is off the table. We are no longer in agreement with God. God asserts something and goes, wait a minute, I don't know about that. All of a sudden, I'm skeptical. And I want to figure it out for myself. And this brings us to this point of just how serious the problem is, having lost the imago Dei, the image of God, in, in the narrow sense of the word, where, relate, where it means that our thoughts are his thoughts, having lost that means not merely that we cannot save ourselves, but even more than that, it means that we resist God. 
we fight against him. So they have this core cancer disease, spiritual disease means that I am literally putting up my dukes to fight against my creator. That's how serious the problem is. Yeah, even when you say, you know, if he says jump, uh, we say how high, well, I don't like that. Yeah. Right? Right. And and I'm thinking, you know, as uh, even though I know what you mean, I'm still like, well, yeah, but why should I? Right. How do I know he's telling me to jump at the right time? Yeah. You know, we our, our trust diminishes quickly, yeah. which I think makes sense in our world, mm-hmm. right? So if you submit yourself to somebody, whether that's like maybe in the military where you might have to jump if they say jump, right? Um, or in a marriage or in any other relationship or to a, a boss or, or whatever the case might be, some of our skepticism is probably appropriate because if we really are these fallen humans, if you tell me what to do, you might actually be wrong, right? Sometimes, right. Right. Um, even father to child or you know parent to child, well, parents get it wrong sometimes. And so as kids grow up, they notice that every once in a while. And, yeah. and sometimes they're skeptical, is, are they telling me really what I'm supposed to do? Mm-hmm. But we're applying that to the creator of the universe. That's right. The one who designed this place, who created it, um, who has the power to create it and to create me. And so it's a very strange thing then to push back against him. Right. You know? and, and that, again, I think shows how, how far we've fallen that the one who loves us and made us and created this ridiculous world for us to exist in and other humans to be in a relationship with and we we don't trust him so when he says that's good or bad we we hesitate we question um and and again that's that's exactly what you're saying i think to put our reason above god's god yeah. says it's this way I, say, I don't know mm-hmm. maybe it's not how do you know who what gives you the right i mean mm-hmm. we know who has the right to put the speed limits out but i think as as a group we're not so sure god has the right to tell me what to do and i think that's that's a part of that rebellion against him mm-hmm. it's it's submission is a challenging thing it's 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 not so much in our our dna and there's a, and there's a reality right we live in the, the brokenness of the world where yeah maybe there's some times we don't listen to authority mm-hmm. and we shouldn't mm-hmm. and there's some times where we need to we need to submit to that authority. And so we live in a very com- complicated world. And I think it's easy to extrapolate a lot of that over to God. Well, maybe I should listen to God here because, you know, that makes sense. And, you know, this works and, it, it you know, it computes in my brain. But this other, you know, area, I don't know. So maybe God's wrong here. And so we want to outthink God. Mm-hmm. Again, we maybe it's maybe it comes from a, a recognition of us being lesser. Mm-hmm. And we and we don't like that. I think, too, even atheists who are, are attempting to dismantle God and Christianity, they catch on to that, too. Um, that if we're looking at Scripture and saying, well, this stuff is, you got to listen to all of this, but don't worry about that side, their argument is, well, then you don't need that book at all. Yeah. If you're going to go through it and decide which of it is good and which of it is bad, yeah. then the real source of good and bad is, is you. Mm-hmm. And, and while they're incorrect in their assessment of, of what the scriptures actually say and the truth of God's existence, they are catching on to what we do, right? Because what I'm doing is saying, God's right here. He's a little off here. He's way off there. I'll explain it to him, yeah. right? And so I, I think they notice that and, and are, are, are pretty shrewd or wise or something to, to recognize that mm-hmm. when we do that, mm-hmm. we are attempting to be our own God. Amen. We put ourselves into a corner. Mm-hmm. I really like what you're saying, Tom, because I I think that this attitude, our rationalization goes on. It's important for Christians to understand 
this is a normal experience. We, we all go through this. We, we have this natural tendency to go, you know, that just doesn't sound quite right. Is that what you really want me to do, God? And, and we're here to say, don't freak out. This is not abnormal. This is actually a normal response because we do have a sinful nature. We do have this tendency to question God. Um, and if, you know, certainly it's something we need to confess and, and bring to him uh, and, and treat as deadly serious. But if you feel yourself struggling that way as a Christian, know that you are not alone. This is something we all go through. It just helps to understand why it happens, why we do this, and we all do. Which then I think makes it easier to confess. Exactly. If I, if I do understand that not, again, this is another thing where we're all the same, but mm-hmm. if I can understand what's happening to me, mm-hmm. I might catch it when I say, mm-hmm. I disagree with you, God. And then I might think, wait a minute, I just disagreed with God. Mm-hmm. And then we mm-hmm. confess that and receive his forgiveness all over again. Amen to that. Yeah, amen to that. So as we're talking about uh, this core problem of sin and uh, wanted to take it to the next step, which we've been elaborating upon, that it's not just that I'm helpless to save myself, but I rebel against God. I actually use a real-life story in Chapter 2 in this book, and, and I borrowed it from my dad, um, who served in, in the U.S. Marines during World War II. He was in the Pacific Theater. Uh, he went to Okinawa, um, and, and he, he drove an amphib. So they were released from the ships, when they would uh, drive up to the shoreline, let down the, the hatch, and just those Marines would take off running on the beach. And it was, it was a horrific experience um, because they were immediately assaulted by, by, by gunfire. Um, but one of those days when my father was coming up on the amphib, one of his, one of his fellow Marines was, was so panicked that he jumped out of the amphib into the Pacific Ocean. And because of all the gear he was wearing, he started to drown. So my dad jumped in after his fellow Marine to bring him back to the amphib. But when he swam up to him and, and came to his person, he was so, the, his fellow Marine was so panicked that he started to fight against my dad. And, and the struggle was actually dragging my dad, my dad down under the water with him. <laughs> so the only thing my dad could think of doing was hitting his fellow Marine as hard as he could to knock him out so that he could bring him back to the amphib. Now, I know this is kind of a, a dramatic illustration, but it's as dramatic as it is, it's not even as severe as what the Bible is teaching um, analogously God is actually going to, and what he does is he, he slays us. He takes this sinful nature, this core problem, and he drowns it. He crucifies it. He puts it upon his son, and he, he kills the, the darn thing. <laughs> this is a podcast, so I need to watch it. He kills the darn thing. <laughs> And so his methodology, his modus operandi, is not to massage it or to try to counsel it or to, come on, let's, let's be reasonable. He, he doesn't do that. Rather, he kills it. And when he does, he brings then the new creation that we were talking about. I know it can be a little confusing because we've also said that the sinful nature continues to cause us to struggle. But when we talk about that that killing that God does when he hits us so hard that he kills the sinful nature by drowning it and crucifying it, that victory means that we're no longer, we're no longer condemned by it. It's not our master anymore. 
It doesn't condemn you. It doesn't condemn me. Yes, sin is very serious, but it no longer is in charge of our lives. It no longer defines us. So when we have that victory of Christ, then we're ready to move on to the next step. So God puts us to death so as to make us alive. It's been said, my brothers, that whenever anybody witnesses a baptism, they are witnesses to a funeral and a rebirth on the same occasion. That's what happens in baptism. Yeah, I, th I think to Tom's point earlier, too, this is all showing us how serious the problem is, right? So if you have a headache, you can take an Advil, and that solves it. If you blow out your knee, the, the cure is a little bit more dramatic. If you have right. stage 4 cancer, the cure is even more dramatic. And here, the, the cure is, like you said, it's, it's amazing to hear you tell that story. One, it shames me for how soft my life is. Um, but it, it makes you realize that the the solution, the, the, the magnitude of the solution shows the magnitude of the problem. And, and of course, then the God is still willing to, to do it for us. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. And, and he's willing to go to the full extent. And that was the cross. Yeah. So again, the, the, the full extent, we want to if we want the God of the universe to, to really see, you know, God, how can you, how can you not see how bad I'm suffering? How can you not see how bad this world is? How can you not see the struggles that we are going through? We're, we're told to look to the cross. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, right? He, and, and it's at the cross. We see everything. Um, one specific thing we see is he knows how bad it is. And he's right there with us, you know, jumping in the water, doing what he needed to do uh, to fix the problem. What you just said, Tom, is, is probably, it might be the single most important counsel for helping Christians get through those trials and tribulations. And it, it's, it was a, a real paraphrase of what Luther said and what he wrote about. Luther pinpointed the different kinds of trials and struggles that we have. And at every turn, he would take that thing and he would take it to what Christ experienced for us. When you're in the midst of that trial, don't just look at yourself. Look outward upon Christ. Everything that he did in taking on our flesh and entering into what we call a state of humiliation, where he, he knew suffering, he knew hunger, he knew thirst, he knew disappointment, he knew trepidation. Um, I mean, for crying out loud, he, he sweat uh, drops of blood at Gethsemane before he, he went to the cross. All of these are recorded so that you would know that no matter what you're going through, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, has been through it for you in your stead. And uh, not only that, has, has, has been through it much worse than anyone in the history of the world. Because when he died on the cross of Calvary, it just wasn't just with my sin and your sin, it was for everyone's sin. And when you think about that, that magnitude of what he bore, and also the fact that because he was completely innocent, it made the pain even worse. Uh, he was never designed for death. He is the life of the world. Uh, but he went through it anyway. Why would he do that? Well, we get back to John three sixteen, don't we? <laughs> for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We still have value. Yeah. This, despite the gravity of the situation, mm -hmm. who I am, 
the sin that lives in me, the depth of that, my rebelliousness, um, my tendency to tell God he's wrong, I still have value. Maybe that's another spot where we try to tell him he's wrong, right? So he says, you have value, and I say, I don't don't think I do. Yeah, every time we try and find that value somewhere else, right? Every time we try and say, the sin problem isn't that bad. I got this. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find that value in something that I can achieve, something mm-hmm. that I can do, something that I am. And in a way, disagreeing with God and saying, I must not have that value. Right. And I have to try and earn that value. It's, yeah. you, know, you, you, you think of other theologies and ideologies around the world whose entire um, you know, mode of, uh, of life is trying to earn God's favor trying to find that value in something that they can accomplish, something that they can achieve. And mm-hmm. God says, it's not why you have value. You, know, you have it, but it's not in that. And we fight God on that. Yeah. You know, like your dad's yeah. you know, fellow soldier you know, mm-hmm. fought mm-hmm. the source of life, fought mm-hmm. the source of help. Mm-hmm. We fight it. And putting it in that context, it, I don't know, it just always makes me shake my head. And, and the, the astounding love of God, I mean, to think that even while we are fighting against him and resisting him, his love for us is unconditional. It, you're, you're already the apple of my eye. You, you are already my child that I love unconditionally. Even as you're doing all these things, everything I say about my love and mercy upon you is true now. Um, when we were talking about this and, and even how we struggle with that, it, it made me think once again of um, the uh, prodigal, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And I almost said the prodigal of the parable son. <laughs> the parable of the prodigal son. And um, there, uh, after he disgraces the father and does so many things, uh, acts of you know, terrible rebellion, he thinks to himself, how can I make this right again? I'll be, you know, look at my father. He has all these hired men. I'll just be like one of them. And he prepares a speech for the father. And the father will have none of that. After all the son has done against him and the family name, he's watching for him. He, you know, he, he runs to the son, which was something that men of, of this um, oriental culture would never do. But he, did, he didn't care what it looked like. And he embraces the son and holds him. And just as the son starts his prepared speech, he'll have none of it. And he puts the best robe and sandals and gives him the ring. And the son of mine who was dead, he's alive. You know, he was lost. He's found um, the basis for um, amazing grace. And uh, this is a great gospel that we have that saves us from the core problem of sin, original sin, that leads to what we do and our so-called actual sin that comes out of the original sin, our shame, our guilt, and even our death. It's this gospel of Jesus Christ who has taken our sin and our death upon himself that has removed his condemnation. We now have life in his name, and this is why we call this podcast Light of the World. And thanks be to God. And and. Before we leave, I know we're going to be talking about uh, we, what we've done here is we're setting up a kind of a broad duality. On the one hand, this side of the ledger are, are these negative aspects of the devil, the world, and sin. When we come back next time, we're going to start the other side of the ledger, 
to talk about how God identifies us as Christian, disciple, and royal priest. And to live in your identity is to, um, is to disarm Satan's ability to bring us down because of this side of the ledger. Um, but before we, we jump into that next time, I want to take time now, brothers, to really talk about, I know we've, we've, we've been talking about it, but, but really to expound a little more about exactly what happened when Jesus came and, and how he deals with this sin and how he deals with this death. Uh, of ours, the shame of ours, this guilt of ours. Um, what are some of your favorite passages in Scripture about just describing the work of Christ and how he dealt with this sin problem and this death problem? You know, because sometimes we talk about the gospel and it can sound so churchy or relig- you know, religious-y, is, if that's a word. And But how can we just share it with people in such a way as to explain just what this good news means in the face of our guilt, our shame, our sin, our death, our curse. What are some of the images that you like from God's word? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that he would go to everyone. I mean, the the part of the reason Jesus was in trouble with, with the religious leaders and those who were righteous in their minds mm-hmm. was because he would be with the lowest of the lows. Right, the the outcasts, yeah. the widows, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, um, mm. and, and maybe those don't quite hit us the same because, you know, we, we've got different outcasts today or, or different people that would be considered lowly. Um, right. But but if you can get into that first culture, first century culture a little bit, that's he went to the the, the lowest of the low. No one was beneath him. No one was. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody that he wasn't seeking out and pursuing and looking for. And every single time it never comes with this kind of harsh judgment that we tend to picture, you know, the, the finger wagging um, kind of thing, but compassion and love and forgiveness. Uh, and so, you know, not to say all of his, I mean, it's kind of all of his interactions, you know, mm-hmm. that he constantly was going to the lowest of the lows who I think we can identify with. Yeah. Uh, and and even the prodigal son, right? I mean, it's almost a hyperbole mm-hmm. what the kid does, mm-hmm. and then it's but it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's actually less than what I've done. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can truly grasp that. But mm-hmm. um, there's just no limit to his compassion and his forgiveness to any kind of person in any kind of situation. It's reflected too in some of you know his parables and some of his teachings, right? If if a brother sins against you, go to that brother, show him his fault. But what's the purpose of that? It's to love the brother so that yeah. the brother sees um, the reality of sin and, and sin in self, and it's, it's so that they would receive the source of redemption. It's not, <clears throat> I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, again, that's self-righteous that the, the right. world, you know, sees the church, and unfortunately the church acts upon and acts in this way all t- too often. But everything was out of love and compassion. And it, that was what was the driving force of everything. Every message that he had, every parable he spoke, everything he did, you know, up to and, you know, including the cross, everything was out of compassion and love um, for p- all people. Amen. I really love what you brothers have said. I um, Let me go back to you, Ben, first with the, the, the relational descriptions. And 
three that I'll mention, and, and by the way, the, we're, we're really providing a segue for the next time we get together. We're going to talk about Christian. We're going to talk about all the different ways the gospel is presented in God's word, be it atonement or justification or expiation, whatever. But I think this is great for us to kind of get warmed up for that as we make this transition. What did God do, do with our sin and our curse and our death? And you really do see it in relationships. Um, so the three I'm thinking of right now, the first one I'll mention is uh, Matthew, the, the tax collector. And as, as you guys know, the, the publican or the tax collector was considered to be the lowest of the low in society. Their status in the eyes of the people was they were scum alongside of prostitutes because they were renowned for taking more money than they should have. So they were, they were public robbers who could get away with it. And they, they rubbed it in everybody's face. And so they were, they were literally hated by people. Um, Matthew was such a one. Uh, Matthew, the, the one the, the gospel is named after, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, really, what, what I really love to read about when I get to that calling of Matthew, Jesus does not come up to Matthew and go, let me sit down so we can talk. Let, 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 me, let, let me point out how, you're, how you've been a screw-up so far. And I'm going to kind of break down this in terms of a, an ethical or moral evaluation of your life, Matthew. He doesn't do that. He just looks at him. And he says, follow me. Can you imagine what must have gone through Matthew's mind? He knew what he was. He knew what everyone thought of him. He knew that if anyone was far from God, he was it. And here's the Messiah. And he's looking at me. And he's called me to be his disciple. Are you kidding me? Can you just imagine what went through Matthew's mind? Well, when to that be happened? accepted by anybody. Yeah. You know, even, I guess, to what degree... He understood that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah. Um, even if it wasn't that much at all, yeah. right? If, if the whole world hates you and somebody says, hey, I don't hate you. Yeah. And again, Jesus does not dismiss the things that Matthew did. Right. He didn't say it was okay. Right. But he said, I value you despite that. Yeah. And and that's that's a thing that, is so incredible and, and maybe mm -hmm. really challenging to believe in, in yeah. a lot of ways, yeah. right? Especially the, the more I see the depth of my sin or the more I consider myself to be a sinner, mm -hmm. to say, God, he sees all that? Yeah. He still says, come follow me? Mind blower. That's grace upon grace. The other one is Peter. Remember the scene when Peter's on the boat and Jesus is saying, cast your net and cast on the other side. And Peter's all like, totally incredulous, like, he doesn't know fishing. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a great guy, but he just doesn't know fishing. But because he said so, because you say so, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. And then when all those fish, are, you know, are they're, they're tipping over the boat practically, and Jesus comes up to him, Peter hits the deck and bows down. He says, Lord, get away because I am a sinful man. And, and just realizing how low he is compared to the Messiah away from me. I, I can't even look at you. I'm so ashamed. I have no faith. I, I'm a loser. I, I didn't believe who you were and who you are. And Jesus comes back immediately and says, I'm going to make you a fisherman. You're one of mine now. Come on, man. Let's go. Can you imagine what must have gone through Peter's mind at that moment in time? And then the last one, uh, this is my, actually my favorite one, and it's Mary Magdalene. We know that Mary Magdalene had several demons 
And uh, we, we just had some episodes where we were talking about the reality of the devil and, and Dr. Jonathan Rees, who elaborated on that. She had seven demons. And to be in that state of possession, you are absolutely um, atrociously repulsive. Nobody wants to be around that. You know, you, you may as well have leprosy exponentially. It's like this person is off the rocker. They're, they, they cause me to be afraid. They make me uncomfortable to say the least. I want nothing to do with this person. They are the epitome of outcast. And it's this one that Jesus not only heals, but brings her into his inner circle. It's this one that he permits to, to be the first one who sees him resurrected. It's this one that he, he allows to be the first messenger of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine how Mary Magdalene must have felt? This is what God does with our sin. He doesn't see it anymore. <laughs> he forgives it completely, getting back to forgiveness and that love. The other aspect I uh, wanted to bring out here is uh, this, this idea of, um, and this will be the last one before we go into next time, but I, I want you guys to just react to these two scriptures in particular because we've been talking about our having sin and shame and guilt and the sense of curse and brokenness. But there are two scriptures in particular in the New Testament that describe vividly exactly what God did with those things. It's not as if he says, I'm just going to pretend they never existed. He doesn't do that. But he handles these things actually in such a way as to say this. And, and this, is the, this is the one from 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin, this is a mind blower, to be sin for us <laughs> so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I mean, wow. <laughs> the scriptures are actually saying that Jesus became our sin and became our curse. What are your thoughts on that? It's hard to find a, I mean, you can't. I think it's always helpful to understand scripture when we can, mm -hmm. not to equate it to the things of this world, but when we can find some kind of comparisons or analogies, aspects of things. I, I can't find, <laughs> I can't find one for like this that, one. <laughs> right? I mean, it is, I mean, somebody just taking the place in every way, shape, and form yeah. to its fullest extent mm -hmm. of the law. Mm -hmm. It is It is really something unique. Mm -hmm. That's my first thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just that, that sacrificial love um, offered to us. And and it is, you know, because it doesn't work in other things. Like we did the cancer thing the whole time. I can't take your can I can't put the cancer from you into me. That It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it does here with sin. And then you add into that the reality of, of does he really know what I've gone through? Well, if he's become my sin, then yes, he, he has experienced every thought, action, inaction, mm -hmm. not only of me, but of you and of you and of every single person mm -hmm. that that's, mm -hmm. I don't know how to yeah. wrap, wrap my mind around it. Quite. Yeah. We make a lot of uh, bold statements as humans, mm -hmm. whether it be out of love, romantic love, or even brotherly love or, um, maybe even out of some selfish, you know, sense of self-righteousness kind of claims we want to make ourselves more in, uh, than, than what we are. 
and we make a lot of claims about what we'll do and <laughs> how many of those claims are you know I'd, I'd i'd go to the moon for you or i'd <laughs> i'd climb the highest mountain for you and so much of that is just you know it, it leaves us short because we know they can't actually do that you know they're trying to um you know communicate a sentiment which is i'm sure very sincere and very well received and it makes us feel good but he didn't, he didn't just say it mm-hmm. <laughs> he he went the full extent that's some poetic analogy he's making yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's a real exchange taking place and of course this is this is um the way one of the ways luther loved to to proclaim the gospel was through this uh joyful or wonderful exchange where the innocent one christ became the guilty one and the guilty ones all of us became the innocent ones and i in in ben you you were talking about going back to the analogy of the cancer i i can't like take your cancer um, and that's where the analogy breaks down, just as, as you were saying. But this is exactly what Christ does, is he takes our malady. Um, and one of the things that kind of came to my mind as I was listening to you guys was a scene of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and she just knows that if she can just reach out and touch the edge of his cloak, that she'll be helped. And she touches him. And Jesus is all like, who touched me? And the disciples are all like, Lord, we're surrounded by all these people. What do you mean who touched you? Everyone's touching you. He says, I felt power go out from me. And this is a great, um, I think, a great commentary of how it works. Of course, we can't explain it, but this is what he does. He takes the bad stuff from us, and he gives us his good. He gives us his healing. He fixes the brokenness. This is the work of Jesus Christ. And we know this through the new creation through faith. And this is what we're talking about on um, the light of the world as we go through this outline that um, we have here from faith that sees through the culture. What we're going to do next time is we're going to look at what it means to be a Christian. And when you know what it is to be a Christian, you know the benefits of all the different ways the gospel is described in God's word. We started on that a little bit just now, but next time we're going to expound on those things and really celebrate the good news and know why the good news is the greatest news the world has ever known on Light of the World. Great to have you. Until next time, uh, Pastor Espinoza, Tom, Ben, and Brad, we bid you to have a good night and the Lord bless you.